O my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The strength, or the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Those are verses 24 to 27 of Psalm 102, which is the psalm appointed for today, Maundy Thursday, April the 14th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Just so you'll know, Maundy Thursday means command, commandment Thursday. It's the new command I give you is to love one another. That's the command that Jesus gave us that night, that we were to love one another. I mean, it's not a new command, certainly, but, but it is a commandment to love one another. It's not an optional part of Christianity. And so what we, what we normally celebrate today is that. It's the Last Supper. And so um, sometimes in our church we would do uh, foot washing on Maundy Thursday because Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and flattened the organizational chart at that point, um, taking on the form of a servant in a way that would have been like horrifying for a rabbi to do for his disciples, much less for God to do for these men. And so that's why we call it Maundy Thursday. So it's the night Jesus is arrested. <clears throat> so we're continuing our look at, at Jeremiah's prophecy, chapter 20 today, verses 7 to 11. The gospel is going to be John uh, 17, the first 26 verses. So we have a long, long gospel today. It's Jesus's high priestly prayer for the disciples. And it's, it's the announcement that he's getting ready to come to the Father, but it, he's praying for them. And as we'll see, for us. Um, we're, we're moving away from Philippians now because we're in Maundy Thursday. So we're going to be looking at that this new commandment would also include communion. And so that's part of this whole package uh, of what we celebrate on Maundy Thursday is communion itself, because th- that's when Jesus inaugurated the new covenant in his blood and told them how to keep the true Passover feast. So what we get is 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 to 17, and then in chapter 11, verses 27 to 32. So to start with Jeremiah's prophecy, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You're stronger than I, and you've prevailed. I've become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. So what's he talking about? Why is he saying these things? Well, the, the problem that Jeremiah is facing is, is that, that he feels sort of like a fool because he has made these proclamations, and then they're not coming true. In some quarters of Judaism, the, the explanation of Jonah's reluctance to go and proclaim to, uh, to Babylon is related to this, because what they'll say is, is that, that his response to the Lord, why he's angry, is because I knew you'd do this. I knew you would have mercy on this people. And so we first hear that, and we think, okay, so he doesn't want the Lord to have mercy on him. But but there is an alternative way of looking at that, and some quarters of Judaism look at it exactly this way, to say that, see, I, it's the mark of a prophet is when God does what God says, God, well, what I say he's going to do. He said, I knew that if you told me to proclaim disaster to them, that ultimately if they repented, you'd, you'd turn and relent of the disaster that you had, had had me prophesy against them, and I'd look like a fool. 
I would look like a fool. And so that's why they say, some quarters of Judaism say that's why he didn't want to go prophesy, because he knew God was going to forgive him, and his word wouldn't come true, and therefore he would be uh, rejected by, as a prophet by the people to whom he prophesied. He, so Jeremiah says, whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become to me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say I won't mention this or speak in his name, there's in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. In other words, I continue to prophesy. You continue to not do what you're telling me to say you're going to do. And so I have resolved on different occasions, I'm not going to say anything else. I just can't keep doing this forever with no return and no proof that what I'm saying is true. But when I try not to do it, he says, there's this burning in my soul that forces me to continue to do this thing. For I'm hearing, I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. So he, he sees some evidence there, but, but they're whispering against Jeremiah. Denounce him. Let's denounce him. Say, all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he'll be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. And God's response to this is essentially, it ain't directed at you, Jeremiah. You're just the messenger. That it's really me they hate. And it was the same with Moses. When they would be angry and grumble against Moses, the Lord said, don't take it personally. And he had to do that with all his prophets. They had to be told not to take it personally. Jesus, when he talks about persecution that will come, he says, for my name's sake, don't take it personally. They're not persecuting you ultimately. They're persecuting me in you. And that's exactly what's going on here. Jeremiah's uh, companions and friends don't want this to happen. They don't want to see what he's prophesied come to pass. He's a thorn in the flesh. Because he keeps saying these things, and there's no evidence any of that's true, and the other prophets are saying totally different things. He said, but the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. So he has a confidence that finally comes. And, and if you've ever been used by the Lord and if you've ever done something and worked really hard at something for a long period of time and not seen any return on it, you know the attitude Jeremiah has here is that I've had it. I've had enough. I can't continue to do this. It's what Elijah said. I'm not going to continue to do this any longer. This is too hard. There's a, it's a never-ending pressure and I can't handle it anymore. And so he goes out into the wilderness. And people do that all the time. We, we make decisions to say, I've had it. And God's patient with us. And, and he continues to speak to us. And he continues to call us to do the mission. Jesus prays for the disciples and for us for that very same thing. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Finally, I mean, you know, there's multiple times his time had not yet come. John's told us glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. So he's asking for his own glorification so that he can glorify him further. So it, it's there's you can see this love in the Trinity that Jesus is speaking of and says, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So it, there's a, there's a decision making 
involved in this. God's given Jesus certain ones in order to preserve, in order to give them eternal life, which means that others don't. So he has authority to in two ways. It, the, the authority is, is, is through judgment. He has the authority to judge, and therefore he has the authority to give some eternal life and not give it to others. And he said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I mean, that's a powerful statement that, that to know God and to know Jesus are eternal life. And this knowing here is, is an expansive term. It's to know in an intimate way. It's not just to know with your head. It's to know with your heart. It's like to know a spouse. <clears throat> he says, I glorified you on earth. Using past tense here. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I did all this for your sake. I wanted them to know you. And I, and I always proclaimed to you. That's why at the death of Lazarus, he prays out loud and says, I know you always hear me, but I say this for their sake, that they'll know that I'm not the healer you are. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, restore that glory to me because I've completed the mission. And give me that glory in your presence. Not here on earth, but give it to me in your presence. I've manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and have come to know in truth that I came to you from you, and they have believed that you sent me. This is a powerful prayer. He says, I've done everything that I can do. I made you known to these people. I've given your word to these people. They've kept your word. They know that I came from you. And they've received it, and, and they know all these things, and they believe that you sent me. And it, it's such a powerful thing that he's stating their belief in him, and it's getting ready to be horribly tested, and they're not going to fail that. They're not going to pass that test. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And he's not just talking about these. He's talking about all. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. That's a burden. How are we doing with that burden today? Is he being glorified in you today? And that's the thing. Give glory to God. Give glory to him in Jesus Christ. And I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. I mean, he's already emotionally and otherwise checked out of all of this. He, he, he is, he's already seeing this, and that's the way we're supposed to live as well. I'm no longer in the world. That should be true of us. Our hearts should be there. But they're in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The, the way that our relationships within the church are supposed to be is, is that, that it should express the oneness and the unity and the love of the Trinity. That's what Jesus wants for the fellowship of his church, that, that we, by being in the Trinity— in Christ, bound together by the Holy Spirit, might have the same expression of love among one another as the Trinity itself expresses. Because when we don't, then as we've been incorporated into God, then we compromise the unity of everything in the world. So it's important that we seek to be uni in unity with one another in truth. 
truth has always got to be the most important thing. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. They're not going to have it in the short term, but they will ultimately, because they'll be able to recollect this prayer, and they'll be able to recollect all that Jesus has done for them, and they will see joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In the same way that I've talked about him keeping Jeremiah, so long as Jeremiah kept at the mission, then he was protected from the evil that was devised against him. And here, Jesus is praying. In, in the Synoptic Gospels, you'll see him praying that, that Satan desires to have you, but I've prayed for you. He wants to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And so this is his prayer for them, that, that he would keep them from the evil one which is exactly what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. <clears throat> it's They are not of the world just as I'm not of the world because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because we have risen above that. We've, we've experienced second birth, and we're no longer of the world. We're of God. We have been adopted into his family as sons and daughters, and so we're no longer of the world. Does the Can the world see that? In us, I mean, that's the important thing. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Truth matters. So this unity has to be based in truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be also sanctified in truth. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. That's me. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. We're to be made one with Christ and one with one another, who are, with those who are in Christ Jesus. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. That perfection is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit so that the world may know that you sent me and I love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see your glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus' claim here in this prayer is to be preexistent before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. It's a powerful prayer that he prays for them this night, and they can't possibly understand what the emotion is behind it because they've never believed that it would come to this moment in this hour. They believed that there would be an hour when he would be glorified, but not the way that he's going to be glorified. Whenever he brought it up, they would argue either with him or among themselves. This can't possibly be true. They're, they're like the, the ones who we had met in yesterday's lesson who said, wait a minute, you keep talking about this one who's going to die, but we know from Scripture that the Christ lives forever. Who's this son of man who must be different from the Christ? We don't think we understand what you're getting at. You seem to be pointing at two different things, and, and the resurrection says, no, he does live forever. In the epistle, Paul's talking to us here about communion and how we approach the table. He said, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
and, and it would have been easy to be caught up in idolatry in a place like Corinth, because there were lots and lots of temples and idols in that place. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And, and that, that oneness, that unity of purpose, that unity of, uh, of mind matters. And, and he says that, that body and blood of Christ is meant to bring us into that hypostatic union with him and with one another because we're all flattened out. There at that table, we are sinners in the need of grace. We are all saved by the blood of Christ. Whether we're wealthy or poor, whether we're slave or free, male or female, Jew or Greek, we're all flattened at that table. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he stripped to the waist and washed the feet of the disciples. He didn't even set himself above them in that moment. He set himself as below them to show that how we were to relate to one another. And that's how that oneness actually happens, because the way we all see ourselves is intended to be we're the servants of Christ and we're the servants of one another in this sort of circular fashion. And so then we can, we can serve one another, and we can also at the same time then be served by one another without becoming proud or arrogant. It's possible. I believe it. I really do, because Jesus prayed for it. And it's what Paul wants and what he's looking for from the Corinthian people. And there's an expression there in their communion where it's not true. And he speaks into that in this 11th chapter. But we, we're not reading that part of it, but he speaks into it. He says, what is it that I hear? I hear some of you eat, some of you go hungry, and what in the world is going on? There's no unity in that. Some of you are still setting yourselves above other people. So then here what he says is he tells us how to approach the table spiritually. Whenever Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. It's why I believe that, that, that the service of Holy Communion in the Anglican world is done exactly the way it is, that we confess sin and we confess our faith before we can come to that table. But in between those two, or after those two confessions, then we share the peace with one another and the intention of that moment is to express that unity. It's to say that whatever we came in here with, we've forgiven our brothers and sisters at this time. And therefore, now we can come as the body of Christ, as one before him, because we're not divided by sin. We're not divided by unforgiveness. And so Paul says this, that we've got to discern and we've got to come in an un, we can't come in an unworthy manner. And the way we do that is we pass through confession. We discern ourselves and we confess our sins to the Lord. And then we make the confession in the creed, in the statement of faith. We, we, we confess that we have discerned his body as well and found him to be worthy. We've decided we're not worthy, but he is worthy. But it's his worthiness that allows us each who are sinners to come and receive the body and blood of Christ. That's how we do it in a worthy manner. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Don't come to communion in a cavalier way. This is dangerous, he says. If you're receiving Christ, you're receiving holy things, 
without confession of sin and without preparing yourself for that encounter with him, then you're bringing judgment on yourself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul says there's power in that stuff. That communion is a powerful thing and we shouldn't come to it lightly. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You want to be disciplined rather than condemned. You want to be convicted rather than condemned. But, but for discipline to work, we have to receive it in the right way, and we have to receive it as conviction of sin that the Lord's calling us to change, and therefore that's why he's disciplining us, because he loves us so much that he doesn't want to have to ultimately judge us and condemn us along with the world.